recording as well. I'm recording now. So we usually like count it off so we can match it up in the editing tool. So we'll just count from five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two one. one. Did you want to count two, Krithi, so we can <laughs> match it with your audio? Oh, I see. I'm sorry. I'm oh, really sorry. Like, what's going on? Well, right we, so we edit all these tracks uh, separately, yeah. we'll put together, but like as individual tracks. So we just like count it off so we can match up where we hit like one, if that makes sense. Because I don't, I may, I may have like hit record like a few seconds after. So it's just to sync it up. God, yeah. I'm with you now. Okay, for sure. Okay. And then, I'm sorry. After that, are you talking or am I talking right away? Like, uh, I'll talk right away. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm yeah, ready yeah. now. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Five. Five. Four. Four. Three. three two, two. One. Okay. <laughs> now Nick's talk is broken. But that's yeah, all right. So- I know it doesn't like what I call it. I highly recommend keeping this in the in the final Yeah. Yeah. We need like a. Some light stuff. Yeah. I told yep. I told Nick I was probably going to quote Ted Kaczynski oh, no. today, maybe <laughs> talking about tech. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess we'll just get right into it. Welcome back to Poison for Profit. My name is Zach. I'm Nick. And we've got a very special episode today. We've got our first guest for the entire show. Krithi Talam. Uh, Krithi. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> yes, welcome, Krithi. <laughs> I'm going to let you introduce yourself, your background, and, and some of the things you're working on and your interests, if that works for you. For sure. I think it does. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's been super cool to listen to the episodes to date and to watch, you know, watch you guys build us up from the ground. Um, even I don't do the five, four, three, two, one. So that's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I'm Krithi. I am a finishing PhD candidate right now, and I'm sort of in the computational biology space. Um, I sort of, my, my, my line is I'm an interdisciplinary STEM scientist and innovator. So I am not only on the nexus of um, biological questions, machine learning, remote sensing, and data engineering, but I'm also on the, the side of scientific machine learning, which is how can we take theoretical, mathematical, computational um, frameworks and piece them into the real world, piece them into um, real world data sets, real world messy problems, that kind of thing. Um, And then I'm also, uh, I guess I will be lead machine learning engineer at a startup pretty soon um, as well. So, yeah. Great. So um, I think of you as in like sort of the proximity of the tech industry would that be would you say that's fair definitely definitely okay yeah um yeah so i guess you work on tech to solve uh, environmental problems and i think there's kind of a disconnect for a lot of people myself included um when you when we think of technology um and i think i'm uh, I've been kind of, I've considered myself a bit of a, a Luddite in that uh, there's a lot of ways that tech has been a detriment to society, but I think that's just because of the 
the kind of um, overarching kind of looming presence of tech that exists in everyday life, like on the phone, on your cell phone, uh, online, things like that, to where when I think of tech, I think of things like, uh, you know, social media, which can be really kind of damaging to people's psyches, young people, especially um, things like biotechnology that we talk a lot about with, with agriculture and how it impacts things like biodiversity negatively. Um, and then, of, of course, things like um, automation and and militarization uh, technology. But this is obviously something totally different. And we live in the age of information, right? So, so you really need as much information. Uh, things move so fast that you need um, information just as fast to solve the problems that are being um, found or being are being perpetuated in other areas. So uh, I was just curious what your your view is on the ability or even the limitations of technology to solve environmental issues, human health issues. I think that's a super lovely setup for a conversation like this, actually, because I think it like it touches on a lot of things I am thinking about constantly. And it touches on, I think, one thing I want to start with, right, is I think I can speak for some people in my technological, environmental tech, like climate tech. That's what I phrase this as climate tech space. When I say that, like, even if on the surface we are advocating for certain, say, like a company with a product that we is ocean room carbon removal, things like that. And we're like showing up in, in, in face as if we're all for it. I think a lot of us have doubts about how this is actually going to go. Um, and I say that not to be like, you know, like, oh, surprise, we're actually I'm, you're all frauds. But to say that I think that we all have these questions and I wish there were more spaces, first of all, where we allowed that doubt for this stuff. So I think it's really cool that you you give like these both sides. And I think that actually allows me to talk about what I think are benefits, but also say like, I continue to struggle even while I'm answering you. So, you know, I just like want to preface with that. Um, there are companies that do like carbon removal from oceans, and that's one of the ones I've gotten a recent job offer from. And, and, and it is, um, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about because it's like we there are there are systems that are tried and tested. And the, so here's the take. Like, I think the take is there's two sides. Some folks say like, hey, you can't engineer your way to solutions. And I strongly agree with that. And then there's the folks who say, hey, we've given, and I'm a climate scientist, so this is always a touche on me, which is like, hey, we've given climate scientists enough time. Y'all haven't done anything about it, so we're gonna figure this out another way. And honestly, when I hear that statement, it's, it's hard for me to completely disagree with that. It's hard for me to be like, oh, screw you, like you're not thinking about this the right way. I think fundamentally, one of the problems that exists is how we think about our systems, how we think of human beings as separate, how we do think we can engineer our way, how we do think we can build technology versus build the ethics side of it, build the policy side of it, build how are how is this going to integrate into our systems that we have very few roles for that. But if I log on to any climate site and I look for the available jobs, there will be tons of engineering positions and nobody really thinking about the policies or the implementations. So to answer you, that's where I think one big problem is right now, is that we don't have an integration pipeline. We don't have 
a mechanism for a lot of spaces to integrate, to scale, and to think about people or animals or plants or biodiversity or the environment as well. We, we, we don't even think about them as creatures, half the, as beings half the time. We think about them as others, which is something that Robin Wall Kimmerer talks so much about in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, the whole idea that we literally other everything around us. And that is where I think the value system behind technology is super not okay. Um, and then at the same time, you know, I think if, I think it takes many solutions to solve solve what we're trying to solve as well. So in the space of, of uh, anything related to environmental crises, anything related to environmental equity, um, which is a whole other topic when it comes to technology, I think it takes many solutions, many brains, a lot of funding going in different places for this to work. Um, but ultimately, I think my thing is I think we're, society is deprived of a value system change. And I think anything can be like bad or good when there is a value system or a lack thereof assigned to it. So that's probably the way I would like end that is there are possibilities, but we need to train people in more like heartfelt and more connected, empathetic ways towards the environment. One thing I wanted to jump back to that you said at the very beginning, though, that uh, resonated to me because I don't feel a lot of people in the tech industry actually uh, address this is that the tech we're not really that sure of. Uh, I felt that's something that a lot of the time it's just like, oh, we'll get solar panels on it. We'll sequester carbon. We'll do all of these things. We'll just recycle our way out of it. Uh, and turn that plastic into more plastic, which that's not a solution. We all know this. But I thought that that was a really, uh, I guess, from someone coming from the tech background, it's very, uh, uh, I guess, you know, uplifting to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm, I think that it, that's the thing is like, part of the problem is making it only a technolo technological problem, right? <laughs> Saying like, let's just take Empathy, human hearts, emotions, equity, social sciences, policy, out of this. Let's build a product and pitch to a VC. For anybody who doesn't know, VC stands for venture capitalist. And for me, that is that is the problem. That is part of the problem. <laughs> so um, there are some organizations and, and universities, like I think universities have a very siloed way of thinking about this too. There are a couple of universities I can I can think of right away where they integrate like um, for they integrate social sciences plus quantitative sciences or plus computation. I think those are like solutions. Those are starting points to thinking about these things. Um, technology has a huge um, deficit of thinking about environmental equity and human equity and like the people we leave behind, the animals we leave behind, the environments we leave behind. And I think time and time again, because it's the hype, it sort of gets away with that. And because it's also the thing that brings more money back, right? Where we're fundamentally in this capitalistic society, I think that is a very challenging space to do social good because social good has long-term payouts. And that is um, very hard for VCs to process. <laughs> so <laughs> if I can say that. Yeah, no, yeah, that is not a controversial opinion in this group <laughs> so uh but yes um i guess that i would like to get your thoughts on because you did mention the ethics side and i think you're you're spot on with it uh we so we a while ago talked about cop 27 and nick might know 
what I'm about to bring up um, with carbon capture. Mm-hmm. Um, so these policies, uh, I think there was actually just a headline about how uh, these carbon credits that are coming out are pretty much worthless. Um, and um, so when we were talking about COP27, carbon capture and sequestration came up and the one of the, one of the potential ways to get credit for capturing carbon was like m- buying or, or making wooden furniture and it's just outrageous to me to to, to like that that is a way to 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 <laughs> to uh get out your of goals, your responsibilities yeah. of 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 your environmental policy yeah um i was just wondering if if you kind of see that at all in any of the stuff you do i mean you you might not be as closely uh connected to those kinds of policies but um i mean you're closer to the tech industry than we are is there is there much you know thinking about that those ethics oh my okay and so the question is like Am I seeing a lot of that in this space? A lot of these like, you know, weird um, ways to count. Yeah. And I, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably more, it has a closer connection to the industrial side that the big emitters. Um, it was just a, just a thought that, that came into my mind um, about carbon capture and how effective that technology can really be because another thing i'm going to bring up bill gates now if that's all right with you Uh, (laughs) bill gates um bill gates i don't know if he owns it or he definitely invests in some company that does uh carbon capture through soil and he gave an interview and one of the questions in the interview was about his private jet use and if it's hypocritical and he said no because he pays for carbon capture. However, that carbon capture, you ha- first of all, you have to pay for it for it to get done. And it takes six years, at least, to process. And I'm sure, you know, the amount he's investing, it's taking much longer than six years. I think, I mean, we talk about ethics. I think there's, <laughs> especially with that kind of, that class of people who use private jets, who have the the super yachts? I mean, there's I don't know how many of them have super yachts, but uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> when we talk about ethics, it's like there's clearly not any real ethics to to what these people's efforts are in the the, the climate solution. Okay, this is weird. I, I I hate to reference something twice too soon, but I have to reference Robin Robin Wall Kimmerer's book again. She gives this I you know she gives this interesting thing. I was at a cafe uh, heading to um, heading somewhere the other day, and like I it was a super long line, and um, a lot of it was like six a.m. Uh, a lot of people were frustrated, and I realized that as each of us got to the counter, it was a very like irritated sort of like here's my money therefore i need this thing really quick and i gotta go kind of energy that's fine like you know okay sure um i get to the counter and i realize i sort of do the same thing i'm like i need to go like you know i'm I'm paid you already i'm like waiting for this thing robin talks about this idea that once we assign you know 
the way that the way that you know society used to work is is what the barter system, right? Like I make this beautiful cloth for you, you give me um, water for the day, and therefore we have exchanged something. There is a relationship between those people, all of that. What money does is it sort of takes it takes relationship out. It says like we all believe and buy into this system, so. I don't owe you anything anymore because I have this thing. I've given it to you. So what more do you want from me? So it's hard. She explains this way better than I'm explaining it. But what it made me realize is how it takes the humanity out of a relationship. One of the things I think that technology once again does, especially when you can have a, you know, Bill Gates conversation where he, where he himself believes what he's saying. And I, I think at least on the facade, he believes what he's saying is he takes the question of, Okay, but if you're really gonna think about this, you yourself know that this is not okay. Um, it's like when they hire psychologists at tech companies and to literally figure out how to capture people's attention more. Um, and they say, well, it's the person's fault for not being in control of themselves. So, so what? Right? It's this idea of like, I think you know, it, 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 it's. I don't know if that's relatable, but it basically puts to me the same concept of taking, like, dehumanizing. I think in some ways. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering correctly or if I'm going on a tangent here, but to me that is like a foundational part of thinking of, of why the thinking goes wrong, why I can like It's sort of like a like a social conditioning, right? Like yeah. like you you and I think, you know, it's just uh, also a, a product of being in that circle also. I would say they're very self important and um it's it's I have access to to this so I don't have to do this. Exactly. 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 And it's like I and that's with the carbon credit stuff, right? I can buy a bunch of carbon credits so I have leeway to emit this much crap. But if we're really going to think about that, it's like how we, you know, ship all of our crap to China to those waters and they end up in those waters. Like can you do it? Can we buy our way through these things? Sure. But I think that is a fundamentally incorrect way to see how we solve these problems. Like for me, it's like hard to even put into words because I'm like, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. But, you know, I think a lot of people still don't really understand that and or see it that way. So I think in the technological space, um, it would to, to, to make this conversation more um, reachable to, to the next question, which is like, OK, Krithi, what's the solution um, to me? That's like to involve more interdisciplinary thinking into these frameworks, into these companies, into these products, whatever. Like if you want to do your product, if you want to do your carbon credit, fine. Involve the native community actively that lives on those grounds in that conversation legally, like legally involve them or legally give them authority or bring them into a conversation or bring, I think, more um, facets of a solution into a conversation. So it's like, I can vent all day about this because it actually really frustrates me. And I think fundamentally, Bill Gates knows he's wrong. Like, I will, I will say that. Like, I think he knows he's wrong, but we have mechanisms in a capitalistic society to justify our way around that. And I think that is like fundamentally a problem. Yeah, that's kind of getting away from, I guess... <laughs> The, the stuff you do, but I just thought it, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, Bill Gates is is not you know the most ethical guy, um, and I think recent news has shown that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we'll go on to the next point here, and we've already covered it a little bit. But 
technologists' real commitment to using tech and seemingly only tech to solve issues? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm curious, like, what what are things that you guys have seen lately that, that have triggered you the most? Because there's multiple companies I can think of right now, but I'm also from, for you guys work on so many facets of this through your conversations. Like, what... Um, what triggers you as well about it? Because I, I feel like I'm in the space all the time. I hear all the good things. I don't know what people always think are some of the worst things about it. I would say for me, it's definitely like the greenwashing of a lot of uh, just technology in general. And then uh, like, I, I mean, for me right now, I'm really focused on like biodegradable and like labeling and all of that. And I just really don't think that technology is as good as they say it is. So that triggers me a lot uh, personally. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I would, I would just probably piggyback off Nick. Like, like the technology that we have is not good enough to solve the problems that we face. So there really is. And I guess I'll use biotech and agriculture as an example. Um, these these uh, pesticide resistant crops that get planted and you can spray as much Roundup or whatever onto it as you want. And it basically degrades the environment around it. But hey, you're growing corn, right? You're growing your your cash crop. You can get paid from it at least while you're losing pollinators. And it's pretty much shown that pollinators are more important to crop yields than um pesticides so i mean it's this kind of value system like you said earlier to where you can try to substitute a an invented solution to solve this invented problem but it's just causing another one yeah i think okay so this makes me think of two things it makes me think of the scalability of some of these problems which is also part of the problem um and it makes me think of the fact that often we are designing solutions before fully understanding problems and i think that's another half of the equation so your question though to make sure i actually answer it was sort of like um you know what yeah so what is like the most so those are some of the most frustrating parts about this um Nick, you had said, yeah, I think, um, I think these solutions are often, first of all, um, developed by certain types of people. Um, and so the frame of thinking is usually from some place that is like, you know, privileged enough to sort of start a company, um, privileged enough to spend time, um, you know, maybe even like having having a degree if we're really going to go there, right, in, in these engineering spaces or whatever. Um, but then also sort of, you know, the privilege comes with a sense of what people think the problem is, like thinking it's carbon credits versus um, maybe, you know, like understanding um, the communities that live in these spaces and what those needs might be, or maybe understanding the, the biodiversity that lives in these spaces and what those long-term needs might be, it kind of comes down to like, how can we generalize the problem and, and, and find this one product that can like be the thing we pitch as if it can solve the, solve world, the world's problems. 
So I'll say that. And then the second thing I want to say is you, you mentioned that company that Bill Gates funded. I think it's called Verd Docs or Verdex or something. And they did find, they did have a huge backing and like a ton, millions of dollars, I think, from from Bill Gates. And then later, I believe what was found out too was that their, their CO2 removal kind of work was only um, successful within a lab scale. So to me, that's interesting because they're they're pitching. I think they closed with eighty million dollars, which is insanity. Um, it closed. They I don't know what round of, of funding they closed, but they closed a bunch with a bunch of money. Um, and you know that's a lot of money for a, for a, not for a solution. It's like I'm not crapping on the fact that it works only in the lab, but to have all of that money for just testing, you know, within this one, again, facet of a problem, to me, I think is like, still speaks to um, why I think we're gonna see some, it's like, I I don't wanna say this, but we're gonna see continued suffering in many human communities if we sort of don't um, have more types of people, more types of thinking and more frameworks for these problems. there's so many, so many thoughts running through my head right now. I'm trying to pick just one as I talk, but um, I think that is a part of the problem is really looking at solutions more carefully. So I think going to the, you know, the Verdox company and really understanding, okay, what kind of systems does this work in? Is this like a coastal carbon removal thing? Is it a deep water carbon? Is it a terrestrial thing? Oh, it'll work when, you know, um, there it's in like dense vegetation spaces or it'll you know, I think we don't even understand that half the time. It's more like we've got this technology. Let's go throw it out in the water and land and, you know, see if that works in some way. Um, so I think those are some parts of the problem that like speak a lot to, to me. Like one example, I, I don't know if this is valuable talking about, but one way that I tried to address this was when I was working in India. So we had I was building out a machine learning pipeline. I wanted to look at how diseases were moving through waterways. Um, and my entire thing is about how like water moves things. Water moves things. And I think that's a very interesting concept. And water moves diseases and water moves pathogens and water moves epidemics. And so I was looking at that, but I was talking to governments. I was talking to the Navy. I picked that station because the Navy was, Indian Navy was there. So they had a lot of historic data records and stuff like that. Um, and I'm over here, like, you know, with my um, bachelor's degree sort of from America trying to build out this machine learning pipeline. Like, six months in, I'm having all these conversations and, and, and go- with governments. And I had, like, this sense of, okay, I know some kind of pipeline I can build. Um, and I, I think I was, like, on the, on the beach and I ran into these fishermen at, at 4 a.m. who were, like, pulling fish from the water. And I had learned a bit of the language, so we started speaking. And I learned that so much of the things I thought were the problem in those last six months from talking to government officials were literally not ever, I'd never once thought, like they were nothing that the fishing communities brought up, basically. So I ended up adding on an entire part of my study where I interviewed 125 households along the coast of that city of Ashakapatnam to kind of see like, and I talked about the men and the women because women were running the entire economies of that system. So it's like when we think about solutions, I think understanding who plays a role in what way is important. Because when you say fishing communities, I think my tendency was to think fishermen and you mostly see men out there in the water. But the women are the ones who clean the fish. They dry the fish. They sell the fish. They bargain. They, you know, they do all that. 
And so I think that they were a part of the system that one day, if I'm looking at like um, protection of rights, or I'm looking at a pipeline that includes the economy of fish sales because of disease mechanisms, I want to include something from the different components of com um, of communities who are part of that. And if I just paid attention to fishermen, I would just take that into account. I just think these are small like examples of a way to think, to, 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 to take multiple things into account. Anyway, ended up writing this entire like social science side to this work. And I think that by the end of the year, the government of Andhra Pradesh, which is a state, was willing to consider that work because of the jointed effort to look at both parts, um, willing to consider fishing community needs because they were getting sick from those waters and urban people were not because water was getting cleaned by the time it got to those people. So it was like this very distinct way for me to see in a small, small, small scale how um, important it is to look at other aspects and how detrimental it's going to be if we don't. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So I, I guess it's like connecting and, and I'm dumbing this way down. So tell me if I'm uh, connecting kind of the stakeholders yeah. so that the, the people who are making the decisions understand all the risks, basically. Okay, so oh, I like that. That's or, even better than what I what I think. Okay. better than what I said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Do you see that? Because um, I, I think you know, tech companies have a lot of influence. Mm -hmm. Do you see that happening at the moment? Do you think the tech industry really takes into account the needs of others? I mean, obviously. Uh, in America, especially, it's all profit motive. But um, as when it comes to these kind of solution uh, aspects, it's such a hard question, and it's a question that I want to answer honestly because you know I can I can say the stuff for the sake of the podcast episode, but I think it's a very potent question, um, and I think that like. No, no, I don't think that, you know, tech is sort of doing um, everything it could. You know, one of the things that occurred to me through these layoffs that tech has been having is kind of the question of like investigating why we're having those layoffs in the way we are. And I feel like a lot of the conversation is around like there are layoffs and, you know, tech industry is like crashing versus like, what kind of people are we bringing into companies that maybe, you know, we could bring better people to make these systems more sustainable kind of thing. So instead of just hiring like a crap ton of engineers, which if you look at any board or job board right now, most jobs in anything related to data, anything related to math, computer science, engineering, machine learning, computer vision, anything is for an engineer. It's like a computer vision engineer, machine learning engineer. It's like you don't, and you, unless I'm going to an NGO and even an NGO is I'm seeing database engineer. I'm not seeing jobs for social sciences. I'm not seeing jobs for um, economists. I'm not seeing jobs for artists or musicians or, and that might sound kind of funny or weird, but like, um, I think, um, you know, an integration with, Oh, so much like an integration with schooling systems an integration with um, musicians an integration with 
healthcare, like there are more ways, I think, that large companies, like you said, Zach, have so much power, um, so much say in the direction of where we go. And I feel sometimes like I am a part of that. I, I have a say in like what ML tools are sort of like um, the most up and coming and the next job I'm about to start is all about looking at inventing machine learning tools to kind of look at these problems more carefully. Now, one argument that, that climate tech makes that I, I think is valuable to bring up and brainstorm here is that you can't do something about it if you can't measure and monitor it. That is sort of the pitch I hear often. Is that true? For sure. Like you cannot, you know, we don't know the problems to address. There are a lot of problems and and they there's no point source. You can't just say it's a it's a you know, like I looked at cyclones off the coast of India, but I couldn't just say, oh, oh, it's cyclones that are causing dengue spikes. It was different things. It was like fishing communities migrating half the year to, to another part of India that was causing a part of the problem with the fishing and the dengue. And there was like many social problems that were also, you know, a component of that. Um, I forgot where I was going with that, but basically um, to say that, oh no, I really forgot where I was going with that. Um, there, there needs to be a call essentially for um, more less power, I think, within the tech space, um, and then more room for other kinds of solutions. I also think like small scale solutions are okay. Like if we start with um, bringing environmental science or environmental equity courses to schools or something like that, like reframing how we set students up to solve these problems, reframing how we train um, our youth, which are literally coming up now and, and we're gonna have a whole other set. Like I used to, we used to be that and now it's like another you know batch every time of people coming out with different skill sets. And I think the more everything is geared towards this computational quantitative world, um, the less room that we give for um, ourselves to really connect a little bit deeper with with problems and i think that that's not only a detrimental for detriment for under for problems but it actually suppresses us from solutions to solve certain things and so um i think that's also part of how i see this so in, you know in my life like the way that i try to do this is by integrating art and music like as a musician as a runner i i feel like as a runner i get to connect to earth when i do that and remind myself of certain things um and then the so I think that's a part of it from an individualistic level, but then I think there are ways to bring that into schools and bring that into communities and have more VCs who fund like environmental art, for instance, or VCs who, fu who fund ocean just science, like in general, versus having it to be a product, having it to be a technology. Um, I think that there are absolutely ways to do this, and it really comes down to us wanting to do this as a society. Yeah, I was. I, I thought that was really awesome. Uh, what you were just saying about uh, how we need to kind of focus more on the societal uh, side of things too when we're thinking about these solutions, uh, because I mean, I think as a society we've really kind of gotten into our our trench, into our rut. We're really stuck in our ways. No one really wants to make these uh, make these changes. Which uh, I mean, you know, you you break a shirt or like a shirt tears nowadays, you throw it away. Uh, buy a new one. Uh, 
used to be that you, that shirt you could patch it up uh and that was just perfectly fine uh or that shirt would have another use but now we don't really think of a secondary use or tertiary uses for things um and that i think is uh, just something that like as a society we really need to work on and then I just think it's very interesting thinking about uh, what you were saying with the fishermen that how no one would have ever thought that oh because they are uh, like nomadic almost they're moving around that's why they were having they were having these issues uh, and we just like don't think of this the earth as a whole system uh and that's the the huge issue here uh we focus on the problem we work on that problem uh and then whatever gets missed oh well we did our best (laughs) yeah and i wish it wasn't going to be specific communities that have already been hurt in the past or stomped into the ground in the past who are going to continue who are going to continue to be affected by this but it is going to be that and so we have the, the 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 we have the um, the sick freedom to turn an eye to that. And I'm really, really hopeful that, you know, um, we don't, that we don't. And I, I think of so many of my colleagues who, um, really love what they do. I have a colleague who studies frogs and he really loves looking at, um, you know, their role in environments. I have a colleague who will fight to the death for snakes. And I think that that is so cool. And those are the people that like, really motivate me to also stay stick clear to um the the i love what you said nick basically the organismal side of this the integration of the entire planet as like an entire ecosystem an entire um truly as 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 cliche or as you know some people might think that's cheesy and i think that's the problem is we don't allow for these conversations without making it like a oh why are you talking about it that way like well because i think it is a reminder that one we're we're apes can i just say that we're apes like we're actually like apes (laughs) like like, whenever i say that it is humbling to me you know it really is i'm like oh (laughs) like shoot like i need to like remember that but then the second part is you know hopefully that integrates into how we move in the world and just because i can um use a straw doesn't mean i do it like whatever I'm sorry for the honking. <laughs> no word. Barely hear it. Yeah. One way that I think that this is actually... So I, I totally left this out. There is one beautiful solution, I think, to integrating tech. And, and Zach, I know you had kind of asked me, we've talked a lot, you know, in the context of technology, sort of being this powerhouse of, of, of like my way or the highway, which it, it sort of is, and like, you know, plowing through um, the direction of the world right now. I also, I tend to err on the side of not saying one thing is good or bad because I think it's easy for me to feel that way. So here's a way in which I've sort of navigated this and maybe this will be helpful for your audiences because I think um, this is something we need a more we need more of, which is biodiversity. So we've really, I've not talked much about that. When we talk about technology, you look up any like, you know, climate tech website and you'll see, you'll see what? You'll see food and agriculture. You'll see climate tech. You'll see electric vehicles, um, buildings and coolants and, you know, green buildings. You'll see like um, green shopping or whatever. You'll see all kinds of things in that space. The thing, and then you will even see these days, you'll see the term nature-based solutions. Or um, there's a, there's another one, which is, um, it's like about like putting monetary um 
monetary value on ecosystems as well. There's a term for it. And I'm the natural capital. That. Yeah. The one thing left out of it is biodiversity. So I think one way to integrate, right, is not only from the human ethics side, from the social sciences side, from understanding communities, from environmental equity, but it is literally bringing biodiversity back into these conversations as part of your product, like not commoditize, but, but talk about it like it matters. Bring it up like it matters. Integrate it into your models like it matters. Like when I look at diseases, I think I just looked at dengue or seagrass wasting disease. And I didn't look at the manatees that are involved when seagrasses die out and we have the Indian River Lagoon, which is a 147 mile long estuary in Florida, show having like 600 manatees dead a year because seagrasses are dying. Then I'm not correlating this to what Nick, you were saying, which is the organismal aspect, the integrated aspect of the, the entire reason our planet functions, which is biodiversity. You know, when we look at bees, Zach, like you pointed out, like we, I think um, it's not even just about if corn works and if that is what we want to feed our animals, great, but we're actually losing pollinators. And that's the important point here, right? We're losing a creature that like is part of biodiversity. It's not part of EV. It's not part of green buildings. It's part of biodiversity. And I think like that really needs to be looped in without it becoming a qualitative problem, but for people to value it as a quantitative problem too, even if that's the starting way to look at these things. So I'm sorry, that actually does trigger me because I think that is one way I have found a lot of value in being able to um, see the sentience in the systems I work in, but then from a capitalistic society pitch that it really matters. <laughs> I, my rant is over, thank you. So Krithi, we wanted to just bring up uh, one of the studies that you were involved with. Um, it's a malaria study, I believe, um, so Mozambique? Um, in Madagascar. Madagascar. Um, and kind of how it, it relates to disease vectors and it was um, analyzing social, um, socioeconomic, um, geographic um, intersections kind of and, and, and how disease transfers in, in um, I guess, any area, right? Is that, would you say it's, it's kind of transferable to globally? Um, I, okay. So just on, oh, like is a, is a model, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. Good question. I love this study because first of all, for context, right. Let me contextualize this for your audiences, excuse me. And then, um, I'll kind of go in a little bit into that. So this study, which we published, um, I don't know when I need to pull it up, but 2020, 2023, I'm sorry, a few months ago, I thought it was like either December, 2022 or yeah. So this year um, um, is basically talking about the aspects of malaria dynamics in the context of climate, land use and socioeconomic factors 
to sort of predict um, malaria dynamics at very fine scales, meaning like geographically very small scales. We're looking at Focontanis, which are basically like the equivalent of, I don't know, a village, basically, um, within rural Madagascar. And um, the reason that I think I, I find this study very relevant is to look, we, we, we looked at, um, developed a path analysis model, basically looking at direct and indirect relationships between climatic land use and household survey data relevant to healthcare practitioners in rural areas. So I think this is important for a number of reasons. First of all, before I go into like, does it scale? Um, healthcare historically has been um, robbed from a lot of um, countries around the world uh, and also now given back in very limited ways like in you know in um, the ways that like the Gates Foundation for instance will will go to certain places and sorry Bill we don't have anything against you're, you <laughs> yeah you're speaking the right language on this podcast <laughs> I mean there are there are problems with that there are biases on where we decide intervention and intervention goes right? And that is a part of the problem. So our team was like, let's buckle down and look at, buckle down, excuse me, and look at if we can go to some of the more rural areas of Madagascar um, that are not, um, that there was no data for to be. So the, one of the challenges was there was really no historic data, um, very limited healthcare access, very limited resources. Um, and so we were trying to predict malaria, future malaria cases, like based off of that was very hard. Um, so that was the context of the study. In terms of our results, we essentially built this framework that included both environmental and social predictors that could be complementary, um, as opposed to standard surveillance systems, which were mostly people going out in the field or collecting that data, or it was the it was the, the hospitals that only documented the patients that ended up getting sick enough to come into the hospital, right? Because you can get sick and never be documented as well, especially in rural areas. And so there was there was a complication there. But we essentially built this this double edged framework: environmental plus social predictors um, to help inform and control. Um, help inform control strategies, I guess, like more like prevention, monitoring, control, control strategies um, at local scales. Now, uh, emphasis on local scale. Um, obviously, we started there. We started with these, these 47 Focantanis and like didn't expand beyond that. But at the same time, it was one of the first studies ever done in this area to encompass um, both aspects, I think, of, of, of work for healthcare practitioners. So I'll stop there for a minute, but um, I think what made it unique, Zach and Nick, was like in context of what we've been talking about, our team actually finding a way to make a reality what we've been kind of talking about for the last 45 minutes, which is, you know, can we integrate both? So we coupled the household survey data, we coupled the quantitative data, um, and we're able to actually come up with a, a really cool model, um, but at local scales. Cool. Yeah. Um, and I think one of, I don't know if you said this, um, one of the the findings, or I don't I'm I'm not an academic, I don't know what you call them, uh, but uh, was that you found was there a higher occurrence in irrigated agricultural land? 
Yeah, and so it's interesting because it kind of falls along the same um, the same line of, of what I started with for my entire thesis, which is water moves things, right? So yeah, there was. Um, and, and I think like on that note, it was also, um, so you asked me, yeah, it was there higher currents in those areas? Yes, there was. Um, we also um, noticed that there was higher currents in areas where um, overall wealth was lower. Um, there was actually higher currents in areas. This is, this is an interesting part that we didn't talk um, much about, but from satellite imagery, you can look at the lights that are on in a household um, or just the lights that are on at night in an area as a proxy for understanding household wealth and then as a proxy for understanding um, the relationship between household wealth, access to being able to fund themselves if they get sick, um, and you know those folks who, those communities that end up um, getting ill because they cannot afford to take care or go to a hospital or whatever. So it was a multifaceted kind of aspect of that where um, you know folks who had to use irrigational systems had to end up in certain places. They were getting sick as a result, and we noticed the Fokontanis that um, in, in Ifana Diana that were, um, th th that had a tendency to have more night lights actually had less malaria incidents as well. That's interesting. I, I wanted to tie this to um, DDT and this resurgence of DDT to the developing world. Um, and I'm not trying to like, to, uh, you know, I think this is great research that you're doing. It's, it's amazing to, to have these predictive models. Um, I would say with something like DDT, which is a, you know, a manufactured pesticide, it's, it's, um, it, we've known it's toxic for decades, right? This, uh, is now being put back into, you know, the continent of Africa to control for things like malaria. And this is just, this isn't really, you know, totally related to tech, but I'm interested to know your thoughts as an ecologist at the same time about this resurgence in, in DDT to control for malaria. And maybe now this newfound knowledge that, um, mosquitoes that carry malaria are, you can target them in this irrigated agriculture. Now you might be spraying DDT on crops or, or you know, areas where crops are grown, things like that. Um, and it really just goes in with it with, is this really the right thing to be doing? Right. Absolutely. So I think, you know, this is where that statement I made earlier where I said the tech industry, our climate tech industry argues that you must, um, to be able to do something about something, you must be able to monitor it, right? Sure, fair. And then to be able to do something about the monitoring results, I think we're missing the last piece there. Not the last, but like we're missing that um, crucial part. So DDT, um, that is correct. Yep. And it does not degrade, right? It remains intact in environments for decades. Um, humans will be generations later, like a generation later can be affected by DDT and it travels through soil, water, air. So you're right about these irrigation systems. Um, and I think generally also the last part of the summary before I proceed to answering is like the decision to use DDT is based on governments or, you know, uh, external, like a I really don't like any of the terms we have for developed 
versus developing right. nations, but you know, for the sake of this conversation, that external developed countries get to sort of impose um, across boundaries, I think is super complicated as well. Um, there are some groups in the continent of Africa that span between like Botswana and um, I've only known about the one in Botswana that's like a DDT expert group. And so what happens, what's happening right now is like we, they have environmental scientists um, and they've, they've, they've spoken at, the reason I know this is because I've watched talks that they've given at the Stockholm Convention Center on persistent pollutants or persistent organic pollutants. There's, there's stuff, basically I'm saying there's like questioning in this space already, which is a good thing. Um, and there are, you know, expert groups established that have scientists within them. Um, I think that's a first step because a lot of times um, these these DDT groups are placed within governments to advise appropriately based on science. Um, you know, and then at the same time, I think that um, a lot of these groups come from outside. Not I think. A lot of these groups come from outside um, and from not the countries that they're working in or they are funded by World Bank or WHO, like World Health Organization. And there are, um, you know, like there are ties to funding that I think is also part of the problem. So that's my long-winded answer for saying I have started seeing solutions come up in the space. I've started seeing them integrate scientists into the policy, but the scientists are still coming, I think, from the wrong places. And I think that's a part of the problem. Um, and at the same time, I think we should know at this point that instead of investing in things that are easy to invest in, if we spent more research on something that was way less harmful and in some ways like natural or whatever, we would find it. Like, I, I absolutely know that we would come up with something that is way more natural, way less harmful. We don't need to have a DDT expert group versus spending that money on coming up with a better solution as well. So I wanted to preface to just like completely not show my bias. And then I also wanted to say that like, I think there are hardcore, I think that there are better ways um, to do these things. Very good. That's what, that's the answer we were looking for. Yeah, we didn't, we don't, we don't have to edit it to change your words around now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. They're like also the UN and the Gates Foundation, they fund a lot of this work, by the way. So I think that they are highly tied, which, you know, I'm not going to say anything, but like. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, maybe a conflict of interest there. Yeah. yeah. The pesticide use. I just, I, so I've done a lot of pesticide work. Um, so I did that in Colorado as an invasive species specialist. And I, yeah, so like what you're talking about a lot with like, we need to be able to first identify the problem, monitor the problem. Uh, that's basically everything that you do for invasive species as well. Uh, so I just really feel or always felt, well, how did this pest or weed or whatever it is, how did that get there in the first place? And how can we prevent that from happening instead of going to this, you know, I'm out there spraying pesticides or whatever it is. Instead of getting to that step, how can we prevent it from even getting here in the first place? Um, so I just feel like a lot of the times the pesticides are more of a bandaid to the solution rather than an actual solution to the problem. Um, especially... 
I just feel like using something like DDT is absolutely crazy with all of the research that we've gone into with it. Uh, not only for human health, but then the environmental issues that are also coincide. It's just absolutely nuts. Yeah, it was like the it was like the poster issue for the American environmental movement for oh, yeah. Yeah. years, yeah, and now like, like we're just exporting it to to Africa now. <laughs> It's okay if they use it in Africa. They need it, right? That's the whole... Like, rubs me rubs me so the wrong way. Yeah, it's like I try super hard to... I think this is the scientist in me that's been trained to say, well, hold on, think about what's happening. But to be fundamentally... Like, to be honest, I don't know. It's, I feel like I'm going in circles saying the same thing. It's just like... It's just... Um, it's super messed up. It's super messed up. Yeah, and I guess when I think about it... Because it's... You're... I mean... No, you don't want anybody to have malaria, right? Malaria is terrible. Uh, you want to prevent people from getting malaria. Um, but you were just talking about like people's access to healthcare. Yeah. In these countries, right? Yeah. Why not invest in healthcare first, at least? There is a company, there's a an NGO called Health in Harmony, and I have to shout them out. Um, have you heard of them before? <clears throat> we have not. Yes, and I urge you to 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 look them up at some point. They I've collaborated with them before. They are absolutely incredible. Um, they are essentially an international NGO and international nonprofit. I'm not sure if those are the same thing. Um, and they work on rainforests. Okay, and they use this concept called radical listening. And I interviewed them for my podcast like three years ago. And I remember being like, "What do you mean, like radical listening? Like, what what does that mean?" And what they do is they collaborate with experts of the rainforest communities they work in, and they've worked in tropical Borneo, Madagascar, a few places, and they've been there for a really long time, um, to sort of to partner with communities, um, primarily women-led, um, to protect forests. Now, that sounds like a pretty generic, like, oh, I've heard of those before. What they do, though is instead of doing this through some kind of like monetary way or some modeling schematic or, you know, they take a very interconnected approach where they realized the reason forest communities were cutting down these trees that were huge carbon stores was because they were trying to sell them for money for healthcare. So what do you do? You provide healthcare. And it's like, that's what Health and Harmony started doing. They brought international doctors, local doctors, they trained doctors to take care of these communities, to forever have the backs of these communities, to provide health care, um, such that families were not wondering about that constantly. Families were not thinking at all about that. And they have been working there for 20 plus years. And, and the, the, the co-founder, founder, Kinnery Webb, she's essentially looked at this problem in a way where it's like, it has to do with finances and investing, um, and they've also provided, now they've gone into providing finance um, support and education support, um, but also rainforest communities and um, and um, trees and carbon and all of that as well. So it's like their whole pitch is we're trying to reverse tropical rainforest deforestation by involving communities fully and by completely empowering them. And even then, I, I have challenges with the word empowering and all of that because it's like, 
as if we come from another world and give them the solution. That's not it. I think we just owe things back to people. And I think we owe things back to communities. And I think we need to let it go, let the power be redistributed um, in a way where it will actually benefit the rest of the world. And we, we really need to start seeing it that way. But I just wanted to inter to add that because I think Health and Harmony is an incredible example. I have one other example that I can point out later in this conversation too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about when we talk about these multifaceted solutions, like you're solving two really big problems at the same time, right? You're, you're exactly. treating people, the, giving people life-saving healthcare, and then you're still saving their natural resources. They don't need to, to do that. Right. Right. And then you're teaching them how to completely like not and not even teaching. You're just like giving the power to them, too, which I think is the last part of this. It's not to come in and impose. I I really quickly I switched labs during my Ph.D. because this was such a problem. And I felt like the parachute science going on in one place where we go for a couple of weeks to an African country and then we write five papers on it is like not okay. And so I think it's really important to, I do work on the California coast now. I have grown up here. I have skin in this game. And I think that is also part of the solution is like work where you have skin in the game. It's like, you know, police in the places you live in. Like don't, don't, yeah, don't go somewhere else. So. Well put. Zach, what are you drinking? <laughs> Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping I was wrong, I was gonna give you the chance, but like, no. <laughs> no, I wouldn't lie. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm still taking this interview very seriously. <laughs> sure. All right, Nick, we'll pass it to you. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll pass it to you, Nick. Pass it to me. Oh, thanks. I have to follow that. <laughs> um, I just thought I was gonna bring up though how talking about. Uh, specifically mosquito-borne diseases is so important with uh, the threat of climate change because their range for the specifically the 80s mosquito is going to increase, which is the specific mosquito that can transmit almost. It's the one that does malaria in West Nile. All of the, the major, <laughs> yeah, all of the ones that you think of. And that's it's just going to become even more of a problem uh, in the United States. I think it already is getting to that, I would think, in Florida. Uh, so I guess my question uh, is, how do you feel that uh, w what you've done in this study can be applied to the United States and bringing it to that uh, sector? Okay, so how do I think that, like, taking what we've done, is this translatable in some way to other... Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that, uh, first of all, for context, right? Like, hmm, how do I... Con so I absolutely think that there are translations to certain parts of the United States. For one, mosquitoes live in tropical, subtropical climates, some temperate climates. Um, you know, they're... They're the main type of um, Aedes aegypti. Aedes, so Aedes aegypti and Aedes um, albopictus, I believe. I study Aedes aegypti, so that's my expertise. But um, there's like those two main ones. Um, and aegypti spreads a lot of diseases that occur in the United States. Chink chikungunya, 
uh, and then they're like dengue, Zika, other ones like that. Um, and they also, Egypti prefers to feed on people and live near people. Um, so they're actually more likely to spread viruses than other types of mosquitoes. Um, Aedes albopictus. I always struggle with this one because I rarely get, I rarely say it. Um, it's okay. We don't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Me spending 20 minutes on this that as your interview Zach's like I will never ask her to come back again Uh, (laughs) um but they they actually live in broader temperate rain temperature ranges and at cooler temperatures than Aedes aegypti so what I think is interesting about our work right and I don't want to I'm trying not to sound too much like a very um emotionless scientist I'm trying to really actually think about this um first of all our our model is something called an SEM a structural equation model I worked with the author of the package of that model for over a year and a half to develop the model that you see in our malaria paper um and I take a lot of pride in that because even the author wasn't sure how to do it with the package he invented so we work together to understand if you were to take household survey data how do you take like interview data and put that into the range of factors that we looked at, right? Which um, we looked at like, um, I'll have to explain some of them, but we, we even looked at residences, distance to roads, the wealth score, the forest loss. And then we looked at precipitation, temperature, all of that. Um, we looked at bed net use, like how often were um, people, uh, could they afford the nets that like um, help protect from mosquitoes? All of that. I think the bigger takeaway is the fact that that kind of modeling is reusable for something like a problem in the United States, where parts of the United States are temperate, parts of the United States, like say, um, you know, the South is, is tropic, more tropical. Um, at the same time, I think it's also the range shift thing, Nick, that you brought up is super interesting, right? Um, there's a general understanding that right now, ecologically, a lot of ranges are shifting north. Um, because um, of heat from equators and stuff. So we're getting like a push up north. Um, At the same time, though, I think that when you're dealing with the same genus, 80s, but you're dealing with two different species that have one is temperate, (laughs) one's tropical, this is why it is, I think, important to model and and in some cases, right? So we understand, oh, how are the temperate ones responding? How are the tropical ones ones responding? Um, So, you know, there have been recent outbreaks in the United States with chikungunya, not malaria, but um, then there have also been like Zika and malaria risks in Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands or Guam. And so like, um, is it directly translatable? Probably not. And like, I'm going to own that because I think it's really important that we don't go throw a model onto another problem. But I think the takeaway of being able to use social science um, data and quantitative science data is super translatable. And the model that I worked on, I think I'm actually proud of the way that that um, can be used in different cases and and, 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 uh, that kind of thing. I'm actually, just for context, I'm actually taking the model I built for the malaria problem and trying to not directly apply it, but trying to rebuild uh, the model with the same thinking for my seagrass wasting disease work off the coast of California. So just to give context of the fact that no, you cannot take a model and throw it anywhere. But yes, it's super possible to take the mindset and the thinking um, and the integration mechanisms and like try to apply that to another problem. Yeah, I just think that that, that modeling is so interesting. Uh, I guess it, get, it got me thinking when you were talking about it, that uh, the irrigated fields were like a hotbed, right? Uh, and I just think that like, it's so cool that you can kind of pinpoint that. And then I start thinking, oh, well, maybe 
is there a way that we could irrigate the fields that would then lower the numbers? I don't know. This is all like very hypothetical, but I just like think it's such a cool way that we can start pinpointing where our weak points are and actually closing those or, uh, you know, oh, maybe let's do drip irrigation here and that'll help reduce the numbers of mosquitoes. I just think it's super interesting research. Also, it, it, it you know, it... um allows us to re-understand a problem before we go find a solution. Kind of like the thing I was saying about startups, like going and thinking what we know the problem is. Um, irrigated out agriculture, in our case, we were looking, looking at anopheles, right? That was the mosquito we were looking at, at to take this back to the Madagascar paper really quickly. But we identified irrigated agriculture as a strong predictor of anopheles mosquito habitat across um, malaria. And we didn't think that, um, and I think it was like the, rice fields had there was a proportion of the, the rice fields being positively associated with like our malaria spatiotemporal model and rice fields were associated with like how often people were in them and so like sometimes human behavior is a part of the problem not um the water itself but like the the, the like the secondary relationship to it or something like that sure yeah 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 there's just so much that can go into it and i just think that there's going to be a lot of very cool models that come out uh i'm just yeah hopefully those models will integrate more and more no not hopefully those models must integrate <laughs> yeah yeah the socioeconomic side of these things and it's 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 great that this is being done in these areas right because because on our list of things to talk about <laughs> we have environmental equity um so understanding, you know, the entire world, uh, you know, Americans are pretty um, American centric, I would say. <laughs> I thought you going to be like, Amer- Americans are pretty American. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would have worked too. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes sense either way. Um, but, but yeah, understanding kind of the dynamics in areas that really need it because they have the least aid. Um, they're kind of the most isolated maybe. And then, but still being able to, you know, use that data across the globe. Yeah, exactly. One thing on that matter that that does, I don't know if this is exactly what you were just saying, Zach, but it does make me think about the environmental equity thing. And maybe we can, we can hop there too for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Cause it takes a little bit of a pivot from the malaria work, but um, it does make me think about, and I would, I will focus on the United States when I talk about this, but it makes me think about another part of this problem that we've not talked much about. And frankly, I avoid because there are not many spaces to talk about it, but, um, you know, we think that, so I've already said, and I ident- we've already identified that like parts of the problems are not having interdisciplinary scientists, not having interdisciplinary um, skill sets, not having interdisciplinary problems and transdisciplinary as well. Um, so meaning where you like bridge two completely separate fields and then they work together for a problem versus like um, one person knowing both things and sort of integrating interdisciplinary versus transdisciplinary. But another part of this is also like acknowledging the foundations of the degradation of our environment. Maybe let's just put it that way, right? And if we just focus on the United States, we always thought, okay, it's a, you know, humans are simply um, abusing the environment, 
Henry David Thoreau comes along and says, let's, you know, protect this. Oh, wait a minute. It actually is beautiful. Let's protect it, whatever. Um, but climate change and the climate crisis, honestly, um, also, I think, shares a super turbulent history um, with racial injustice. Um, and I think that's a part that we, like, can so quickly just not really talk about. Um, not not this conversation, but I just don't have this conversation with many people outside as well. And I think if we really also want to solve environmental problems, um, I hate the word solve, but if we really want to address these problems, I think going back to systemic racism and widespread economic inequalities in our society um, and how these two issues are connected, what that has to do with people of color um, in you know, environmental health hazards and long-term health, like DDT, whatever, right? Like, I think that is also a deep part of how to form better solutions for com- for for future for the future. Not only from you know an environmental equity standpoint, but from an urban infrastructure standpoint, from a food and health and access to the fact that Trader Joe's exists in certain neighborhoods standpoint, like down to that stuff as well. Um, I think is like a huge topic that we're definitely not going to have time for all of it, but like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, we've talked a little bit about that, you know, as, as, as two Midwestern white boys. Uh, so we don't really like um, <laughs> have any firsthand uh, knowledge of it, but should have you on again to discuss that for sure, because there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, yeah, like you said, we can't get probably into, into the whole thing right now. And it kind of deserves its own conversation, to be honest. I, I fully agree with that. I fully agree with that. Yeah. No, I want to make sure it at least gets, it gets a word in this conversation, but it deserves a whole episode and more. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't agree more. I also just realized you- it's later for you than it is for me. I, I thought we were all... <laughs> it's all right you're good yeah it's all good it's a great episode this might be the best episode yet i agree oh my goodness i was like i don't think i'm providing them anything useful okay cool (laughs) no No, it's it's been going great so far yeah yeah so krithi you have your own podcast you have a couple of your own podcasts actually um and and before you get to plug them i just want to ask you a question (laughs) That, I, that you ask all of the guests on one of your podcasts. And that is, what is your outlook for the future for uh, environment? And I, and I want to include human aspects in this because we talk a lot about human aspects. So what do you see going forward? How do you feel about the future when it comes to things like climate change um, or other environmental and human health issues. One of the first things that I think about is the fact that the planet's gonna be fine. It's our species that's not. And I think we gotta stop approaching this like where I think the rhetoric of save the world is starting to change. I don't think people, I, I think I'm seeing some people more conscious of like how ridiculous that terminology is. Um, I also just think that if we for a moment pause, realize we're this like one ape 
on a spinning globe and there's like millions of other creatures we're never gonna know that have gone extinct that we don't know um I think it's a good chance for us to pause and and this is an indigenous proverb and I'm like I'm disappointed in myself for not remembering where it comes from I need to go look back at where it comes from but I'm sure this has been said in so many ancient cultures too which is you are borrowing from future people you are borrowing from the future in general so I think for me it's like just to talk about an outlook first of all I want to remind myself that I am I am here now and I'm not going to be here forever which means like it's that Shakespeare quote thing right you get a time on the stage and then you're gone and I think it's it it then helps us reevaluate the time on stage a little bit more so my outlook is that I have met some of the most phenomenal animals and plants and non-human animal people through the work that I do. Um, I have conversations with people who can make me like cry thinking about the beauty of seagrasses and how freaking phenomenal they are by just existing silently and doing the things they do without us ever knowing. Like I say the word seagrasses and people go kelp question mark and I'm like no that's not what I study. But I think, you know, from a much more um, spiritual-centric answer, my, my answer is one to just first place us in the context, the broader literal spatial, like, I mean, temporal context of our existence, and then the spatial context. Um, and then to say, from a positive note, that, like, I absolutely love some of the people in this field who do the work because all of us one day thought that this matters. Um, one of the things I never get to question about my work, I never, I get to take for granted all the time, um, I get to take for granted all the time, is the purpose it inherently has. Um, there are people who are searching for their purpose on this planet. I feel like I've just never had to think too much about it, and I'm very lucky for that. So I'll say that, and then to actually answer the outlook part, I think there's a lot of good work happening. I think people are, there are a lot of people who are re- thinking how they want to live on the planet. Um, I think if we pause and think about how we want to live on the planet, Maya Angelou says it's not how you what you do, but it's how you leave people feeling. I'll push further and say it's not what you do, but it's like how you leave the planet feeling. It's like the energy you leave away when when you are 10 steps ahead of the spot you just were in. Like, how'd you treat the spot you were in? Like what fumes did you leave there or not leave there? It's a weird thing, but that's how I think of it, of things. Um, and I think if we reshape our value system uh, from, you know, what society rewards us for into what makes me feel deeply good inside, um, I think we can start to have more love and empathy for, um, the absolute intelligence that exists around us that we uh, don't think very much about. So I have a lot of hope. I really do. Like, I know we have to, as environmental scientists, we're often forced to pitch that hope. I do not want to fit pitch false hope. Um, I think we have severely harmed our environment and severely harmed communities um, of people. And I like think we really need to revisit that. Um, and I think we need to be willing to call ourselves the hell out for, for what we're doing. And I need to be able to call myself out 
as being able to be privileged in this country working on these problems and rethinking how I approach them. Um, but I think with that and with, you know, more system change, more funding in the right places, some more policy into the spaces that that matter, like looking at the sentience of a river, like who cares? That is a way to think about the problem. And I think it's important. Then I think we're looking at, you know, a better future for human beings, because I think we have to remember the planet is going to be just fine. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was great. Uh, so I guess this is the time now. Krithi, is there uh, anything you would like to boost? <laughs> this is all I came here for. No, I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs> finally, Zach. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's about time. You got through uh, an hour and a half. Now it's your time to get what you came for. Oh my gosh. No, I, I will. I actually like, I mean, I don't have a lot to pitch for. Like I have this podcast called the invite, the anthropositive outlook, but I haven't published anything on it in a while. Um, I will say it was my way of trying to talk to people from science, technology, religion, philosophy, art, music, to try to see how are they addressing the environment. Um, so, you know, that is one thing that if you feel like checking out, feel free to check out, but also I haven't published on there in a while. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I have a podcast called This um, This Brown Girl's Guide to Succeeding in Grad School. Um, I work on climate and AI problems, so it gives me a chance to support students who are first gen or who've never done grad school before. I will be the first Talam in my family with a PhD, which is like a cool thing. I think, um, you know, I think from that standpoint, that's a cool thing. But more than anything, I would like to just pitch that if people like want to talk about these problems, if they um, want to do something about it, talk to somebody, like talk to me. I think that's the part where there is a lot of room for people to be involved in, in working on the climate crisis in some meaningful way. Um, social scientists, artists, musicians are making a huge call to you. Like, please know that you are part of our community and we need to do a better job, including you. Do you have a dissertation coming out? You going to publish that? I do have a, I do have a PhD dissertation coming out in like a month or, or a month and a half. It's, it's going to be a time. Um, uh, yes, <laughs> I'll probably be giving my oral defense in like a month and a half. Okay. I don't know if that's, I've heard people boost their dissertations on podcasts too. <laughs> yeah. Serious? I feel like, yeah. okay, here's the thing about dissertations. No one's ever going to read them is my take. Like, <laughs> oh. I've, I may, hey, if you make it interesting, maybe somebody will. <laughs> I'll try, Zach. I'll try. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all great. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. For being here, Krithi. We really appreciate it. We had a lot of fun talking to you. We'll have to have you on again for more conversations. Yes. Nick, anything to add? Yeah, just to, again, a big thank you to Krithi. Uh, wonderful uh, hearing about all the work that you're doing and uh, you kind of getting us up to date on some of these uh, tech uh, problems and <laughs> solutions that are going on. Yeah, no, thank you both so much. It was a lot of fun and I appreciate all the questions and um, yeah, the conversation. <laughs> Well, with that, that's going to wrap up this episode of Poison for Profit. Uh, Zach, I don't know about you, but I thought our first guest went fairly well. Yeah, I thought it was great. 
Yeah. Uh, but if, as always, if you guys would like to check us out on our social medias, those are linked in the show notes, as well as Krithi's, uh podcasts. Thank you all for listening. If you guys enjoyed this, let us know, and we'll keep uh, more guests coming. So anything else from you, Zach? Talk to you next time.